Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the first lecture in a series from R.J. Rushdoony called The World Under God's Law. Listen to the full series now on Canon Plus. One of the great enemies of biblical faith is spiritual religion. Because God created the heavens and the earth and all things therein, God is totally Lord over every area of life, and therefore his word is not just a spiritual word, but a total word. It speaks concerning our marriage, concerning weights and measures, concerning the land and the Sabbath of the land concerning our treatment of our animals, thou shalt not muzzle the ox which treadeth out the corn. Which means that we are not only mindful of the animals, but that we have a case law there also which says, if we must be mindful of the ox, we must be mindful of the laborer who is worthy of his hire. And those, Paul says, who labor worthily in the Lord's ministry are worthy of double honor, which means double faith. God speaks, you see, concerning weights and measures and pay, concerning clothing, concerning fruit trees, because he is totally God, maker of heaven and earth and all things therein. Spiritual religion began with the Greco-Romans in the Western tradition. The Greco-Romans held that the universe evolved and that spirit was higher and pure and matter was implicitly evil and fallen according to Neoplatonism. And therefore, the life of the spirit was the good life and the material life was the bad life. Well, this would make Satan into a very remarkable and holy person because Satan is pure spirit. But man, body and soul, is fallen in Adam and body and soul redeemed in Jesus Christ. The word of God, therefore, speaks to every area of life. And this is why we can speak of the world under God's law. Our subject this evening is the family under God's law. I'm going to read a few verses from the Ten Commandments. We read in Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Verse 14, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. But again, let's turn back. To another commandment, six days, verse 9 tells us, shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Now why do I read these? Well, very obviously, we have commandments here that deal with the family. There is nothing about the church or the state in the Ten Commandments, but there are four commandments that deal either with the person of God or the day of the worship of God. We have, however, 
a commandment that deals with the family, honor thy father and thy mother, another thou shalt not commit adultery, and another thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Three that deal with the family. Moreover, since the commandment concerning the Sabbath deals also with work, and work in the Bible is family-oriented, work has as its purpose glorifying God and providing for the household. We can say there are three and a half commandments that deal with the family. This is an important fact. It makes clear how important the family is in the sight of God. Moreover, the family is the only institution of paradise. God established the family in the Garden of Eden. The family, in brief, is God's basic institution. It is the most important institution in all of Scripture. Now, strategically, in some times of history, other institutions may take a key significance. There are times when the church has been critically more important. I believe in our age, especially for the balance of this century, and I shall deal with that in one of our later meetings, the Christian school is the key institution in God's purposes for our times. But in every age, the central institution in Scripture is always the family. As a result, we cannot begin to understand God's plan for us and for the world unless we understand what God has intended the family to do, the family to be. If you examine the powers given to the family in biblical law, and you can read of them in detail in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you can find an analysis of them in my book, Institutes of Biblical Law, you will find a multitude of laws that deal with the family specifically. In fact, the whole of Deuteronomy was given with the family in mind. Moses instructing the people of Israel in how they should instruct their families. So that the basic theme of Deuteronomy, as it summarizes the law, is instruction for the families of God and for the instruction of their children. Virtually all powers that exist are given to the family except one, the death penalty. The death penalty is the only power on earth that God has withheld from the family. And this is why, of course, Cain was not sentenced to death because the family does not have that power. But we do know from Deuteronomy that if there is a delinquent, incorrigible son, the family must denounce him. They must participate in the prosecution. They must ally themselves with God's word so that it is not blood, but the word of the Lord which must govern the family. We are never allowed in Scripture to say that the family predominates over the word of God, over the law of God. Thus the parents must take part in the indictment of an incorrigible son to say that important as the family is to us emotionally, 
important as it is in the word of God, it cannot take priority over the Lord and his word. This is a corrective to the evils that humanism has perpetrated. On the one hand, we have ancestor worship, one form of humanism, which deifies the family and exalts it above God and the law. And on the other hand, we have our modern sex revolution, which despises the family. Today, unhappily, we have a culture that is anti-family. Man is in flight from family life. He is irresponsible. The modern man is content to come home and what he expects out of a house is a place where he can watch TV, have a woman who will do his cooking and share his bed for him and look after his children, and that's about all the responsibility he wants. And he'd rather make it easier on himself and have as few children or none at all. Men have been irresponsible for some generations. And what's the result? Well, irresponsibility in a family is contagious when the head of the household manifests it. So women have picked up the idea. Women's live. Women's live. What are they trying to do? Imitate the men in irresponsibility. And what are you getting now? Children's live. The children's bill of rights. And it begins with the dereliction of the men, their irresponsibility under God, their failure to recognize that their basic responsibility under God is a family responsibility, that they cannot be men of God if they neglect the area that God gives more attention to in his Ten Commandments and throughout his law than to any other area among men. The family outranks church and state in the sight of God. And today, the religious instruction, getting the family to church, the concern over the home, is left to the women in too many cases by too many men who claim to be godly. But let's survey very hastily the basic powers of the family that God has placed in the hands of the family. The basic powers of society. The first and most important power in the world in any social order, is control over children. To control children is to control the future. This is why the humanists, the socialists, the communists, the pagans, want control over your children. They want control over them in the schools. They want to control your Christian schools, and we'll deal with that in one of our later meetings. Why? Because to control children is to control the future. And any man who gives his children to the enemies of God, which is what the public schools are, is guilty for God. God will deal with him. It is a sin. It is a sin. I was invited this past winter to speak at a church. The pastor was an old and dear friend and he asked me to come and baptize his son and then to speak. And I spoke about 
the responsibility of parents with regard to their children. I said very bluntly that it was a sin to put one's child in the hands of the enemies of God. And I said it's not only sin, but it's it marks the man as a fool who does it. <coughs> One of the elders wrote me a very nasty letter in protest and said, how can you hope to win people if you insult them? I cited the verses in Scripture where our Lord insulted some of the Pharisees. We cannot give our children to the enemies of God. We cannot give them to a godless education in which God's name, God's word, God's cause is nothing. Is it any wonder they grow up and think God is irrelevant and God does not have total rights over them? They've been brought up to think of God as something outside of their normal lives. This is why every state in the world today is moving to control children, because it wants to control the future. But there is no stability for a child apart from a stable, godly home. You know, when Kennedy became president, he had... One great concern, and that was over the extensive amount of segregated education in this country. Everyone looked with anticipation to the commission that was appointed to study education in this country, statist education. And having computers, all kinds of data from every state in the Union, from the public schools, was fed into these computers. It was analyzed. The result was the Coleman Report. It was very interesting. They found that there was no difference between the segregated schools and the integrated schools in performance. Everybody had assumed that the black children who were in segregated schools were suffering badly, but they weren't. There was no correlation. They found also there was no correlation between the amount of money spent in a particular district or state and performance. So that whether one state spent twice as much as the other did not make any difference in educational performance. At every point, they found no significant correlation save one. And that was the family. If the family was a stable family, the children were stable and performed well. If the family were broken and unstable, so were the children in school. And they found that something like 40% of the black children came from unstable homes and they showed it at school. Those black children who came from stable homes showed it in school. They did well. They found the same correlation among white children. Those that came from unstable, broken homes did badly in school and were problem children. Those who came from stable homes were not. Now, this did not mean that every child who came from a broken home was turned out badly and everyone that came from a good home turned out well. But the correlation was so high, it was the only area where they could find a significant correlation. This tells us how important in the plan of God the family is for the child. No society can long endure if the institutions therein are undercutting the family. And today, in our society, the state 
and the schools, public schools, are undercutting the family. And sometimes the churches are as well. Thus, the first basic power in any society is control over children. God gives it to the family. The second basic power in any society is over property. Property. In the Bible, property belongs to the family. The Bible does not have socialistic views of property. Neither does the Bible promote the idea of private property. Property is a stewardship from God passed from generation to generation through the family. Remember the story of Nabal? When Ahab wanted to buy his vineyard, he regarded it as a sin to sell it. To have wealth to live off of it. Because that farm had come to him from his forefathers, from the days of Moses. It was not his. It belonged to the family after he was gone for generations to come. This is a very important consideration. Property is not socialist ownership nor private ownership in Scripture, but family ownership. We still have a relic of that in our statute books, although it's been whittled away. Community property. It belongs to the community. Which community? The family. It's family property although we have virtually converted that into the idea of private property, so it doesn't have its biblical meaning except remotely now. But that's the way the Bible intended it. The family was to hold the property as a trust from the Lord. Which takes us to our third point, inheritance. In the Bible, inheritance is family-oriented in terms of the faith. The eldest godly son, because the people of God were to regard their wealth and their property as a stewardship from the Lord to be passed on into the kingdom of God through the godly heirs. The eldest godly son was to receive a double portion so that if there were three sons two of them received one fourth each and the other received a half he had responsibility then to their dying day to care for his parents but the idea was that wealth Property was a trust to be used to develop the kingdom of God, to pass it on to children who would further godly work in their areas. Today, of course, we move not in terms of any godly principle, but the pleasure principle. How can I best enjoy life? And ours is perhaps the most unhappy age in history since the fall of the Roman Empire. Because people who try to enjoy life cannot. Pleasure does not come on man's terms, but on God's terms. And today, of course, we see the state seeking to take over control of children. We see the state trying to take over property and tax it, tax it out of existence. We see the state claiming to be the firstborn heir and claiming the double portion before anybody else can touch the estate and saying, 
Forget about your parents. We'll give them welfare and relief. We will be the eldest son to them. And that's godless. Then, a fourth basic power of the family is education. The family is the greatest educator under the sun. No one can equal the family. I like to tell mothers that they are the best teachers in the world, that there is no one from kindergarten up through graduate school at the university to equal them in their educating ability. The most difficult task in all of education is routinely accomplished by all mothers without giving it a second thought. What is that most difficult task? It's to teach a newborn baby who doesn't understand a word of any language, the mother tongue. And it's done in a couple of years, very simply and easily. But there isn't a task to equal it in all of education. But it's done. Done beautifully. All the time. The basic attitudes towards life. All the basic learning of a child comes from the family. The family is the great educator. Moreover, the family puts more money into education than the states do. We're impressed with all the money the states put into schooling. But actually, when you figure out all that Christian school parents put into their children's education, and all that parents do cross-country into the college and university and graduate school education of their children, the total of that is far greater than that which the state puts into education. The family has always been the great educator. People fail to appreciate how much the family has done and can do. In the years, the early part of last century, when tremendous floods of immigration were doubling the population of this country every few years, those immigrant children were educated by Christians in Christian schools. Has it ever occurred to you why it is that this country is not Catholic today. It should have been with the immigrants who came over. Consider the huge waves of Irish immigrants. But do you know that according to a Catholic sociologist, most Irishmen in this country are Protestants and a very large number of them Presbyterians. Why? Well, they were taken care of when they arrived here by Christian tithe agencies and Christian schools. And they became Protestants. The Christian schools determined the future of this country for better or worse. And when they evacuated the field to the state, The Christian cause in this country began to decline. Then a fifth great power of the family is welfare. The family is and has always been the basic welfare institution in society. There are more parents and relatives cared for by the family than by the states and the federal government. And of course, St. Paul says, he who does not care for his own is worse, worse than an infidel. It's our duty to care for our own. It's our duty to care for our parents. 
It's one of the powers of the family, one of the privileges of the family, which God has ordained. Now, I've dealt with the five basic powers of the family, which are the five basic powers in any society. Control of children, control of wealth, control of inheritance, control of education, control of welfare. And the state has been trying to take over all of those. The state has tried to be an imitation family. And it has messed up our society and our world and our children and our lives. And taxed us almost out of existence in the process. You see... We are in a revolutionary age, and one of the key revolutions is against the family. This is one reason why you cannot find a decent book anywhere on the Empress Theodora. Now, who was the Empress Theodora? Well, she was the Empress of the Eastern Roman Empire, or Byzantium, and the wife of the Emperor Justinian. Are any of you familiar with her story? Well, one of you. Now that's very interesting because we should know her as one of the greatest people of all history. Her life was a, an amazing one. Her father was an animal trainer for the Roman circuses in the arena. He died when his three daughters, he had three children, they were girls, I think they were something like seven, nine, and eleven. And the girls were left without any means of support and were tossed into houses of prostitution at that age. Now that's how Theodora grew up. When she was about 18 or 19, a wealthy businessman took her on a business trip to North Africa. She got into an argument with him, and he became angry with her and just abandoned her there without anything. She became seriously ill and almost died. A presbyter took her in, nursed her to health in his own home and taught her the scriptures, witnessed her to her systematically. She was deeply impressed, although she was not converted. She returned to the capital, and there she met a young lawyer. The young lawyer came from a village some distance away, his Parents were very poor. His uncle was a general, and he was childless. And he had written to his sister and said, You cannot educate your son. Why don't you send him to me, and I'll educate him and adopt him, since I am childless. So the young man went to the capital. He was given a new name. Since his uncle's name was Justin, he was called Justinian. Justinian, the young, struggling student, lawyer, and Theodora became acquainted at a party. They fell in love. Together they wrestled with some of the ideas and problems of the time, and their faith deepened, and they both became Christians, and then subsequently became married. Meanwhile, the emperor was dying. He too was childless, and he knew there might be a civil war after his death. So he called in his old friend, the general, Justin, and adopted him as his son and his successor. Justin became an emperor. He was an old man, so a few years later, he died. And young Justinian became emperor of Byzantium 
And the girl who, as a very young child, had been tossed into a house of prostitution, now became empress of one of the great empires of all history, perhaps the greatest. Justinian set about revising the entire law of the empire. And Theodora took a hand in it and said, I am going to have the say-so with regard to family law to make sure that it follows the law of God strictly. So she had written into the law of the empire that the only kind of sexual relation that would be legal would be marriage. She had written into it that every other form of sexual activity was illegal against the law and punishable by the law whether it was adultery or fornication or homosexuality, whatever, everything other than marital sexual relations. She had written to it, into it again in terms of scripture that only the legitimate child born of a marriage before God could be the heir. In other words, she wrote the Bible into law. All our Western law has been a product of the work of Theodora. All of history for 15 centuries, virtually, has been a product as far as the family and its life and its legal powers is concerned of the work of Theodora. And what we have now is a revolution against God's word and against the family and therefore Theodora is someone we don't hear about. And what we do read about her is mostly slander and vicious to the nth degree. But Theodora was right. She felt there was no future for civilization or for Christendom apart from the family being firmly placed under the word of God. And every time in history that the family has been moved out to any degree from biblical law and from its responsibilities to God, the whole foundations of civilization begin to crumble family, you see, is extremely important in the sight of God. What does God do when he wants to speak of the importance of the church? He compares it to a family, the household, the family of God. What does God do when he tells us supremely how important he has made us by his grace? He says he has adopted us that we through Jesus Christ have been adopted into the household of God and are adopted children of God. Over and over again, the language of Scripture, when it speaks of us and tells us how great God's grace is, uses the language of the family. The church is spoken of as the bride of Christ. Sin is compared to adultery. All of which witnesses to the centrality of the family in the purposes of God. The centrality of the family in the purposes of God. This is why whatever your calling and mine may be, whether we are called to be high in the world or in the kingdom of God, or our place is a lowly one, the greatest position and the greatest calling we have in Christ is to be fathers and mothers. Three of the Ten Commandments given to the family the scripture replete 
with laws dealing with the family and the life of the family. The book of Deuteronomy dealing with the family. Proverbs interpreting the whole of God's law for the family, for the child. It's a great calling. It takes the whole of our lives. It requires us to see what a tremendous responsibility and privilege we have under God to be parents. It is not easy, but it is remarkably good and blessed. The family under God's law is a blessed family and a privileged life. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, be merciful unto us for our blindness. Thou hast made us rich by giving us life in families under thee. And all we think of is our poverty. We have been born again rich in Jesus Christ. And been given a great privilege. And having husbands, wives, and children. And we take these things for granted. And despise our wealth. Open our eyes that we may see. How great is thy goodness unto us. How rich and blessed we are in thee. But a position of power is ours as fathers and mothers. And what great things can be done for thy name's sake and for thy kingdom in the exercise of our duties as parents. Open our eyes, our Father, and bless us unto faithfulness to thee in our family lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Do you want questions now? Are there any questions? Yes. I think that I record a, a question unconsciously and consciously, and that is to what extent is the Old Testament to be taken and directly and immediately applied to our situation, and what is the principle? If there is one which enables us to see elements of Old Testament law which were abrogated with the rooting of the veil and so forth. Can you give us some general guidance there? Well, some very specific ones. First of all, unless the New Testament specifically says something is abrogated, such as the ceremonial law, I don't believe it is. Because our Lord is very, very specific on that. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. Now, the word fulfill, the Greek word that is used, means put into force or confirm. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Now, if fulfilled means to be done away with, our Lord would be uh, contradicting himself. He would say, think not that I am come to destroy the law, I am not come to destroy, but to destroy, you see. So it's there. So, unless it is set aside specifically as the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, then we obey it. Now, even with the uh, sacrifices, I come from a background that took them still very seriously. I'm an Armenian. I was very interested, your Seattle paper 
yesterday had an article about what's still going on in Soviet Armenia. And I know my father told me about it. What was this? Before anyone, any farmer, killed a calf for family use or a lamb or a kid or a chicken, he would go to the neighborhood church and kill it there. There was a place at the door. And he would place his hands upon it and he would say, I know, O Lord, that it is not the blood of bulls and of goats that redeems us from sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. But as I shed this blood, I remember the blood that was shed for me. And I come to give thee thanks. And then he would divide the animal and leave a portion at the church for the clergy and go home. It's still done in Soviet Union today, this article said. And of course, I knew it was done because my cousin was over there and he said, the farmers still do it. And they thumb their noses, so to speak, at the Soviet government and continue to do it. Well, I think that's a beautiful way of showing their respect for God's law. It's now a memorial and it still honors the clergy. Well, this was also done in this country. I spoke at uh, Louisville uh, to the Southern Baptist Seminary there about a year ago to some graduate students, all of whom were doing work in some of the country churches out there. It was a graduate student seminar. And I said this sort of thing was still done as well as gleaning in the United States in some parts. I know some parts of California, which up to World War II, we're still having gleaning in some parts of North Carolina. I said, are any of you familiar with this? And a number of them raised their hands. They still get the first fruits, but they still get a part of every farm animal that's killed. Now that once was universal, you see. Everyone did it. That's how seriously they took it. But in recent years, what we've done is to throw the whole thing out. And what's happened to the vitality of the church? It's nosedived. Now, to give you an idea of what I believe, Paul says, Oh, no man anything. But we are to live without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. You know, it changes your style of living when you live on a cash basis. You don't go into debt. And you don't have charge accounts. My wife and I have done it for a good many years. And we feel that Scripture is true. The blessing of the Lord that maketh rich and he adds no sorrow to it. We feel that he's really blessed us and providentially provided for us. We went without for many years because we didn't have the money for it. Then in providential ways, he gave us a home that's several times more than we ever expected to have. But God blesses when we obey his word. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It wasn't a sin to commit adultery in the Old Testament. And now it isn't, although I've heard people say that. As a matter of fact, in a church in Canoga Park, which claims to believe the Bible from cover to cover, about four years ago, the pastor said that we are under grace and not under law, and so he said, I guess we really should say that marriage services are no longer important. In fact, they're wrong because they represent legalism. One police commander who was in the church got up and he protested to the pastor right there in the service and walked out. That's how far some are going now in their antinomianism, their anti-lawism. Well, no, it was not. It was a group that broke away and started a new church on Fallbrook. They've got quite a plant there now. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. Yes, that's a very good question. Do you all hear it? What do you do if a relative has squandered and wasted everything he has and comes to your door for charity? I would say in such a case, your obligation, if there is no change on his part, is to be a wise steward of what the Lord has given you. You are not to help someone to continue in sin. But if there be evidence of a change, then that's a different matter. Let me cite an example. We have a duty to help our parents, to take care of them. No question about that. In fact, our Lord speaks very harshly of those who say, Oh, I gave the money that I was going to take care of you with to the Lord for missionary purposes or something else. So he doesn't have the problem of caring for his parents. You see, that sort of thing is not uncommon in our day because, well, it's, it doesn't hurt you at all to give money as compared to having two old folks in the home who have some claims on you and will be a nuisance to you, you know. So it's much easier to get rid of them and prove you're a good Christian by giving a big fat check to missions. I could cite some interesting cases of that. But, in this one case, a very fine Christian couple had living with them the wife's mother. This young couple had become very fine Christians, both out of non-Christian backgrounds. The mother of the wife despised the faith. Whenever they bowed their heads at the table to pray, she ridiculed it. She would say, does it make the food taste better? She would ridicule the children's prayers and would teach the children things contrary to the faith. They came to me about it and I said, get rid of her. Get rid of her. Because I said, who is the authority under God in that home? Well, the husband is. And I said, all right. She is deliberately defying him and teaching the children to defy him. And she is despising your faith. Well, they became soft-hearted at that point and didn't throw her out. Both their kids wound up as hippies and drugs and in very serious troubles. And both the parents, when they were in their 40s, developed serious heart conditions. Now, you see, they were sinning when they allowed her to stay there and despise their God and godly authority in the home. to know a particular case to pass judgment on it. In some cases, if you feel there is a change of direction or repentance, yes. In others, no. But we do have a responsibility, first of all, to God, and second, to our 
parents and to our relatives under God so that we cannot misuse what really belongs to God. I may feel sorry for someone. Let us assume one of my children goes astray and I may feel sorry because I love them and I want to help them out. But it's the Lord's money, really, not mine. Therefore, I cannot waste it by giving it where God would not approve. Yes. Sin has, doesn't play favorites. The old and the young and the middle-aged could all be sinners. When I was in Nevada, it used to horrify me to see the widows who had come to Nevada within days after burying their husband to blow their money gambling and to hire some young fellow to be their gigolo. Why? Well, if they blew so much, they would have enough assets. Uh, they would not have enough assets to be ruled off of welfare, and that was their goal. Why take care of themselves when the state could do it? So they'd go there on a binge. It may shock you, but Las Vegas. If you go there and go to the casinos. You will not see anywhere near as many young people as you will elderly people. It's a sad fact, but it is true. Yes. It's my understanding that in the Old Testament, there's a real stigma on children being born out of wedlock. And yet it is very popular today among professing Christians to express love to those children and try to completely overlook and obliterate the harm and, and the sin and the wrong that has been done to those children. Yes. Uh, I agree with you 100%, but let me just change one word. Stigma. What the law says is that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord until the tenth generation. For ten generations, they were barred from any office. They could be highly respected people in the community. <clears throat> now, a prize example of that is David. Do you remember the story of Judah and Tamar? And the two, the twins that were born out of wedlock, one of those twins was the ancestor of our Lord, and ten generations back, the ancestor of David. Now, in between, there were some many pro very prominent people in that line. For example, Obed and Jesse. But, not until the tenth generation, in spite of the wealth and the prominence of that family, could one of them hold office. And then God put his hand on David. So, 
It wasn't that there was a stigma attached, but it said the family is so important in God's sight that positions and rule and authority in the kingdom belong to the legitimate family line and we're putting a penalty on all that are not. They cannot participate so that the integrity of the family be represented. So this didn't mean contempt for the persons involved. It simply meant they could not participate in rule. Yes. On each of your five points, the power of the family, for instance, education, public education is financed in part by Christian taxpayers. Uh, health education, welfare takes up 45% of the budget. Welfare is financed by us with Social Security, which is being paid to our grandparents at this particular time. So our control over the children of this this country, we've given over and we're paying for. Exactly. So, what do we as Christians do? Is it not sin to finance the destruction of our children? Well, as Paul said to the Christians of his day, let every man remain in the condition in which he is. In other words, there were many then who felt Rome is so godless, we ought to be doing something in the way of resistance. There was that mood among many. But Paul made clear that the way of faith is not revolution, but regeneration. So, we can't by a tax revolt or a revolution or anything change the situation. We can by faith and obedience. Now, the Christian schools are a way of obedience, and it's shaking the powers that be in this country. I'll deal with that tomorrow or the next day. But they're scared to death of the Christian school movement. This is why the opposition, and I'll go into that too. Because the Christian school movement, if it succeeds, means the end of humanism. Okay, so then we should feel no guilt in supporting our taxes, supporting some abortion, those types of things that are being carried on by our government. We should feel dismay, but not guilt. We should only feel guilt if we're doing nothing about the present situation. But what Christians should be doing is and I'll go into this at one of the later meetings, is to tie. Create schools. Once all hospitals were Christian, we should be creating hospitals. We should be creating the institution and take the government away from the state. But I'll come to that, too, in one of the later meetings. Yes? You made a comment that uh, the state schools and sometimes even the churches are undercutting the family. Yes. Yes, I said the churches are sometimes also undercutting the family. As I have traveled back and forth across the country now for a great many years, I have seen some large churches and occasionally small ones that try to get the entire family involved in church activities every day and every night of the week. I have seen churches that at every month will have a calendar for you to put on your uh, uh, bulletin board in the kitchen or on your refrigerator with magnets, which will show activities for every day of the week. And they feel there's something wrong with the church family that isn't involved there. And they boast about having something for father and mother and for the little ones. And they destroy family life. They actually do. In one situation, when I spoke about the family and its importance, one man said, do you know I haven't had a night home with my kids for a long time? Our church has us so involved in activities all the time, it suddenly makes me wonder, are they anti-family? Because they don't leave us any time to be home alone. 
The last church I had, we uh, decided against all evening meetings, save once a month a family potluck dinner. We had an early morning prayer meeting, so it wouldn't interfere with the family activities at night. And Sunday morning and evening worship. And uh, it did wonders for the families in the church. We encouraged them. We made sure every family got a copy of Voss's Bible story book and read it to their little children who couldn't read the Bible yet. It uh, was a very interesting experiment, and the families enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to the full series, The World Under God's Law, by R.J. Rushdoony. Now available on Canon Plus.